I shall be reading from 1 Samuel, chapter 16, verses 1 to 13. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he'll kill me. But the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees... Not as man sees, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest. But behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. When you were younger, did you have a hero? I mean, that you looked up to, or even now? Is there somebody that you respect greatly? And what is it that you respect about them? What characteristics would mark them as someone that you find is, is great? Uh, would it be their education? Would it be their prowess, their social standing? What makes a person impressive to you? As we look through this study in David, uh, you're going to see that David is, is a great man. Uh, brilliant faith, unique courage. He is true greatness, and yet at the same time we're going to see great failure, great and costly failure in David. In studying David, though, I I hope to reveal to you, and, and that we'll find together, the greatness of a God that has raised up David, that that this sermon's really about God. What does God do among his people? You kept hearing, as Judy read, God is driving this boat with his sovereign purposes. 
that God is moving to establish a people. He's going to raise up David to be a great king. But David is simply leading us to a greater king, the greatest son that David had in Jesus Christ. David is going to be like a shepherd kind of leading us to Christ. So today, when you look at this passage, I want to try to look at three movements that are taking place. One is that God is rejecting a king. God's rejecting a king. You see that in verse 1. You see then that God searches for a king, and that's the bulk of the chapter. And then you see God anointing a king, and you see that in verses 11 to 13. So first, God is rejecting a king. You know, you see Samuel is grieving over the failure of Saul and that God has said to him, I have rejected this king. Now, let me backfill the story a little bit for you. You know, in Scripture, the first king is, of course, God. God is the king. He's king because he's created all things out of nothing. He creates the man and the woman and puts them in the garden. You know, God is really exercising his kingly reign through Adam and Eve. He's exercising his rule as they subdue and as they guard and as they cultivate the land. But as you know the story, the story is that Adam and Eve did not want to sit under the sovereign reign of God. They wanted to be kings of their own right without any sovereignty over them. And so they rebel and they lose their crown. And really the whole story of the Bible is God recovering or God rescuing, God bringing about his kingdom to its fullness. And that's the promise he makes early in the pages of Genesis, that God will raise up a son who will eventuate and become a king and will restore God's kingdom to himself in full glory. And you see this begin to crystallize when you look at the life of Abraham. Abraham is a leader. He's a man chosen, and from him will come this king. In fact, in Genesis 17, God says, kings will come from you. So that's in the mind of the people. And then go further down the pages of Scripture and you find Moses. Moses was a type of king. He delivered the people from Egypt. He saved them. And he brought them and led them through the land, the wilderness. And then Joshua. Very, I'm just going chronologically now through the Scriptures. Joshua, whose name means salvation, was another type of king. He was raised up to lead the people back into the promised land. Now, this was, a, this was a beautiful mark in the history of the Bible. The people are now getting the land. The people are now going to be able to establish a kingdom for which a king can lead. And that's the book of Joshua. But Joshua then moves right into the next book, which is the book of Judges. And Judges should have been a celebration, but it was chaos. It was political. It was social. It was national anarchy. The refrain in Judges is, every man did that which was right in his own eyes. It was just a disaster, very, very dark days. In fact, the end of the book, the last line is, and there was no king. There was no king. They need a king. We need a king is what the people are saying. Now, you have that little book, Ruth, that is between Judges and 1 Samuel, the book that we'll be studying. And Ruth is set in the context of Judges. And it's this beautiful story of faithfulness uh, in Ruth. And at the end, God rewards her faithfulness uh, by bringing Boaz to her. Boaz will be her husband. And the end of the story is that they have a son. And their son is named Obed. And Obed is the grandfather of David. 
So you see this line right through the scriptures that God is intending to bring about a great king, and David is in that line. Now when Samuel picks up, 1 Samuel, you see you're introduced to Hannah. If you go to chapter 1, and Hannah is barren, praying for a child. And God grants her the prayer, and she has a son whose name is Samuel. Samuel, of course, is in our story. Now Samuel will grow up to be the greatest and the last judge of Israel, kind of a judge savior, is through the book of Judges and into Samuel. But in, in Hannah's prayer, when she's thanking God in chapter 2, she prays for a king. And at the last line of her prayer is, give strength to your king. There was no king. See, 1 Samuel is all about the search of a king, that God would raise up a king to lead the people. Now, God's intention was to raise up a king that would reflect God, that this king would be a lover of God's word. It would be a lover of God. It would be a protector of the people, even laying down his life if he needs to. That he would be kind of a picture, an imperfect picture of who God is. But if you read the first half of 1 Samuel, you'll see they didn't want that kind of king. They wanted a king of their choosing. In fact, the constant refrain that you even see in chapter 8 is, it says, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons don't walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. They wanted a king like the nations. They just wanted a king that they could see and that they could hear. They did not want to submit to a God they couldn't see. They wanted a king for their prosperity. They wanted a king for their protection. It really sounds like an election cycle. It's we want a king to do for us everything we want it to do. Well, you know, sometimes God gives you what you want. And he gave them what they wanted. And it was Saul. And Saul had no heart for God. Oh, he looked the part. He looked like a leader. He was tall, a full head above all his peers. He was strong. He was tall. He was dark. He was handsome. He looked like he had, and he even started out on a decent note. But quickly, Saul began moving to establish himself in his own name and his own glory. He didn't have a heart for God. In fact, in this one place, this confrontation between Saul and Samuel. Samuel is the judge who anointed him. Saul says this. He says, I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Saul had this pattern of doing what he wanted to do when he wanted to do it. And so in the first half, it ends with this line. Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. God rejected Saul because of his disobedience. I I want you to know God, in this age of God being loving and merciful, do not forget that he rejects. There's a severity to God over disobedience that we do not want to overlook too quick. We're, We're almost afraid, we're almost embarrassed sometimes to speak about the judgment of God and the severity of God. And very clearly, he says, I've rejected you as my king. He's rejected him because of his disobedience. We don't want to take our disobedience lightly. I would also caution you as a people in terms of what do you look for in a leader? 
in a leader? Do you look for the education? Do you look for the social standing? Do you look for success? Do you look for beauty? Or, or rather, do you look for an ability to weep? Do you look for a, a person with a strong integrity, strong marriage? They don't maybe look so perfectly on the outside, but inside they're, they're solid, they're strong, they're like granite. And what do you look for from a leader? Oftentimes we want the leader to be everything to us, to produce everything for us, to protect us. When you look at some of the political leaders that we look to, they have to provide all these things for us, and they can't fail. That will set us up. When we look for these things in a leader or we look for those things from a leader, it sets us up for us all. It prepares us to go after the promises, the looks, the success, rather than the character of the person. So God rejects Saul. So that leads us up to our passage, where he now sends Samuel to search for a king. And you see this, Samuel grieving, and God says, take your horn and fill it with oil and go to Bethlehem, and you will find I have provided for myself. Notice the language there. In fact, literally in Hebrew it says, I see a king among the sons of Jesse. And so Samuel obeys. He gets his horn, he fills it with oil. Now, he's scared, and he articulates that to God. And and he should be scared. I mean, Samuel was a prophet, but he was also a kingmaker. That's what prophets did. They made kings. They anointed kings. And when he gets his horn of oil filled, and he's starting to walk to anoint a king, when there is an existing king on the throne, that's a threatening thing. And he was scared. And he appealed to God. And you see the mercy of God in kind of meeting him where he is to say, take a heifer with you. I imagine it was a bit of a distraction. Say that you're having a sacrifice in Bethlehem, which he did do. Now, when he approaches Bethlehem, all the elders come out. Now, they're trembling, it says. They're shaking. You can see their nervousness. Why? Well, I'm not exactly sure. One of probably two reasons. One would be that they're afraid of Samuel. Samuel was a formidable man. He was the judge of Israel. He had the power of God. He called down God, and God sent thunder. When Saul, in chapter 15, did not kill the king of the Amalekites, as he was supposed to, he was a wicked king, and God was exercising judgment through Saul, and he told Saul to kill the king, and he didn't. He spared him. And so Samuel takes a sword and hacks him to pieces. He's a formidable man. They may have been trembling over him. What is he coming to do with us? Or perhaps they were scared of Saul. You know, Samuel's got his horn of oil. He's anointing somebody. We don't want to be seen as seditious or treasonous with Saul. What will Saul do to us? And so, of course, Samuel brings peace and says, I've come in peace. And so he has this sacrifice. He has the elders of the town and the sons of Jesse consecrate themselves or to go through a ritual cleansing because they're going to perform a sacrifice. And then as these sons come before Samuel, he sees Eliab, who is the oldest, the strongest, the biggest. And he thinks, it says, he's the one. Samuel hasn't caught the drift just yet. He's the one. And God says, I've rejected him. Same word that he used for Saul. And and look in verse 7, because he doesn't give any reason but this one. 
He says, don't look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees, not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. I'll talk about that in a minute. Let me just go on. All the other sons are brought before him, and they all have the same verdict render, which is the Lord has not chosen them. It's like a Cinderella on steroids or something. You know, none of the, the shoe doesn't fit any of them. And, and you see this. We're at a crisis point now. He's been sent to search for a king. There's no king found. But I want to stop and have you just look at Samuel for a second, because Samuel... A lot of commentators kind of beat up on Samuel. You know, he's kind of failed here. He's kind of faltering. He's getting scared. He's continuing his grieving with, Sam, with um, the fall of Saul. But I want to just hold him up as an example of what obedience looked like, looks like. You know, Samuel is obedient in the midst of sorrow, fear, and uncertainty. Uh, l- let me explain that. Samuel is still obedient, even though he's sorrowful. He is sad over Saul. Saul had the monarchy, the plans of God, the nation of Israel were resting on Saul, and he failed. He failed before God, and he's sad over that. I mean, I'm sure he was also scared. I'm sure that there was also some affection within Samuel for Saul, but he failed. And, you know, I I found it interesting over his grief. You know, how many times we will hear about the failure of someone, and we'll be more interested in the details of their fall then we are sorrowful over his fall or the impact it would have on the church. So I think, there, but Samuel obeys in the midst of sorrow. But Samuel also obeys in the midst of fear. You know, he had to go from Ramah, where Samuel's from, to Bethlehem. He had to go right through the area that Saul would have been. And so to take a horn of oil, to go through there, hey, Saul was an erratic fella. He wanted to put his son to death. He wiped out all the priests when they gave bread to David when David was running from him later on in 1 Samuel. I mean, he was a man that knew how to kill, erratic man. There was fear there. And yet Samuel obeyed in the midst of the cost that might come to him. And Samuel also obeyed in the midst of uncertainty. He didn't know what was going on. He's just get this word from God, take your horn, fill it with oil, and go to Bethlehem, and I'll tell you who to anoint. He doesn't have the whole blueprint. But his obedience, you know, sometimes we want to always know, okay, God, what's the plan? I got to obey. Well, why do I have to obey? And what's the situation here? We want to know all the details of what he's calling us to obey. And he just obeys in the midst of uncertainty. So when you look at your own life now, Where is God calling you to obey? I mean, where have you been walking in a manner? Maybe it's something about even speaking to your neighbor about the gospel, but you're in fear of obeying. What might they do to you? How might they look to you? How might they treat you afterwards? And and we're in fear over what might come. Or maybe you're just sad over a situation, and and you're, you're maybe a little resentful to God that he hasn't brought about the circumstances you want, and you don't want to obey because of these things. Well, Samuel's a great example, you know, to see, no, we can be obedient. You don't have to be even smart to be obedient. To be obedient is to be trusting of God and to walk in the way that his word has drawn us. So we see the search of a king, but we do see, come to a grinding halt, but just for a minute, look at Samuel. He's, he's a good testimony to us. You know, in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says, 
that the Old Testament saints are examples for us. We profit as we look at them and follow. But then we see the movement now go from rejecting a king to searching a king, and then, of course, to anointing a king. Now, you see at this point that Samuel's in a bit of a corner. He's supposed to anoint somebody. He's got the oil. All the sons are passed. There's no one to anoint. So I think Samuel, being probably intelligent and using some deductive reasoning, figures, well, he told me one of the sons is going to be a king. I went through all the sons. Therefore, maybe there's more sons. So he asks, he asks Jesse, do you have any more sons? Now, this is kind of an aha moment, I think, for Jesse. I guess he had forgotten his son. He says, oh, yeah, the youngest one is in the fields with the sheep. For a father to forget that he has a son, I mean, that would indicate he's fairly unimpressive. He's fairly inconsequential. He's fairly unneeded. They knew what Samuel was doing. They saw the oil. David didn't even come up on the radar screen as a possibility. Didn't even bring him in. So, so that's what you kind of see in this family. What I want you to see is the ordinariness of David. I want you to see that he's a nobody. He is ordinary on to the 10th power. He's ordinary. And yet Samuel says, get him. We're not going to eat till he comes. I love that. Now, when David came in, I, I'm sure it was like the air just blew out of the place. I mean, he was so unimpressive, right? His stature, for example, his physique. He was the youngest. That word can be translated smallest. He'd be like the runt of the litter. You know, he wasn't this 6'4", 235, imposing figure that could look out over a field of battle and make decisions. He probably couldn't see over the shoulders of other people. A young man, ruddy. We don't know if that means kind of brownish complexion, reddish hair, or even just unkept but unimpressive. But not just that, in terms of his family. I mean, unimpressive family. This is the first mention of David. You have no birth narrative. You have no history of David. You have nothing. He's just on the scene. That's all he is. His dad doesn't even call him by his own name. So clearly, the family is not significant. And then on the social ladder, the social ladder, he's a shepherd. Now, we've kind of dolled up the idea of shepherd to be sweet. You know, he's with God's animals, and he's out there. A shepherd was a dirty, filthy job. You're outside, you're subject to all the elements. It's a, it's, a, it's a dirty job, it's a tiring job. It's a job that, frankly, it doesn't require a high IQ. You're standing, watching dumb sheep eat. Periodically, you're asked to maybe do something courageous. It, it isn't getting a who's who, it's not going to Harvard Business School for this. It's, it's just... You put the guys out to tend the sheep that can't do the math problems at school. That's what you do. And, and so he, I want you to feel the, the ordinariness of this man. Because when he comes in, God says to Samuel, Arise, he's the one. Can you believe it? I mean, God is so counterintuitive. You know, his ways are so not our ways. And his thoughts are not our thoughts and and there is Samuel then dumps the horn of oil and the oil comes over his head and that that's the critical issue because it symbolizes that God's spirit is being poured over him and he's going to empower and equip and enable him to do everything that God will have him do that's a critical feature for our story 
So you see God rejecting a king, searching for a king, and finding a great king in a very ordinary man. So let me just tease out a few lessons for you to think about. And what I want to do here is I want you to think differently about God. I don't want to draw this David is you and you're David. We're not going to do that through this series. I want you to think differently on God. And the first thing I want you to think differently on is that God doesn't look at us as we often look at ourselves, but he looks upon the heart. Now listen, we don't have good eyesight with one another. We don't. We tend, and we know that about ourselves. We have expressions, don't judge a book by its cover. Looks can be deceiving, but we fall prey to it all the time. I may have shared this back with you a long time ago, but uh, Tommy, our son, got hit with a baseball. Many of you know the story, and he had a period of seizures that he was struggling with, and we couldn't seem to get them under control, and it was really a difficult time for the family and for him. And um, went to different doctors. Anyways, couldn't seem to get him under control, had a connection with the doctor in Duke. And I'll never forget the day. We're sitting in the examination room, and so we're just waiting. You never know when they're going to come in. And so this man in scrubs comes in, just looks like a common hospital employee, and walks in and kind of shuffles in a little bit. And... Um, I'm thinking he's going to clean the trash can. He was one of the custodial staff. And he looked like it. His hair was disheveled. The outfit was... And he's kind of an older guy. And all of a sudden he picks up the chart. that Tommy's chart by his bed. And I was about... You can't see it. If you're, I was about that close to saying, what in the world are you doing? <laughs> clean the trash. I get... I just, what are you looking at my son's chart for? And then he turns around. And he starts talking to us. Well, he's this high fluting doctor that actually was able to figure out that it was the medicine he was taking that was helping cause the furtherance of the seizures. The guy was brilliant and just took a load of worry off our souls. I had him as the trash man because I was just looking at the outward appearances. It was incredible. I was so glad I had shut my mouth. I could have... I wasn't even concerned with Tommy at that point. I was just thinking, whoo, I could have really... But God, God looks at the heart. God's vision is for the heart. What does this mean? It doesn't mean God looks for us to be sinless and perfect. It was David who wrote Psalm 51.5 that he was brought forth in sin. So David was a sinful man, and we're going to see that in just a few, in just a few weeks. But God looks at the heart that's committed to him, the faltering heart, the weak heart that is postured for him. Don't, don't you think this is good? Isn't this good news that God doesn't look on the outward circumstances? He doesn't look at your resume. He doesn't look at your accomplishments. He doesn't look at how many victories you have. This is a, this is a good thing. I mean, how many of us? just labor and struggle over being thin or being pretty or being successful or advancing our careers. I mean, how much time do you invest just in your body health, whether it's exercise or eating? How much time do you invest on the cultivation of the outward? How much time do you invest in the cultivation of a better career? How much time do you invest in, in cultivating the right relationships so that you establish yourself in a certain social connection? Now, I'm not saying these things are wrong inherently. How much time? If you invested the same time on your outward body, 
that you do at cultivating the heart, would you be very pretty? Would you have much beauty to you? God looks at the heart. Now, this can be good in some respects. It can be bad in other respects. When you think through the idea that God sees through your reputation into the reality of who you are, what does that cause you to think? If your life, if all the contents of your heart, the things that you have done, the things that you want to do if you could do, uh, the thoughts you have, the anger, the bitterness, if they were all written down in a book, and all of us received a copy of it on our way out, would you be back next week? Would you come back? How many years would it take for you to crawl out of the hole that you would feel you created in the minds of people? Now, God looks at the heart. The world will always judge you by the way you look and by the way you carry yourselves and the success that you have. God doesn't. That's bad news. But it's good news because he's merciful to us. It's good news. This is really the beauty of the gospel. And this is why we have to be born again. This is why we have to have God's grace give us a new heart. You know, when Jesus spoke to Nicodemus, he said, you must be born again. Now, it's interesting. We think of that as New Testament language, but he said it to Nicodemus who came out of the Old Testament. It was known to the Old Testament saints. It would have been known to David and to Saul. You have to be born again. Why? We know Moses said it about the heart being circumcised. We see it in Ezekiel 36 that the heart of stone has to be taken out to to have a heart of flesh put in. We need to believe in Jesus Christ that, that he has come to save us from our sins, to deliver us from all the disorderedness of our hearts. We just spent seven weeks on the seven deadly sins, and they were all pictures of a disordered heart, a heart out of line with God, a heart not dedicated to God. And to say that you're a Christian because you believe in a certain doctrine or a creedal affirmation, no, that's not enough. You have to be born again. God has to do a work. You have to appeal to him by repentance and faith. That's what it is to be a Christian. And if you're here and you've never been born again, you've never appealed to him for for forgiveness and for a new heart, that is the first step. Because God's looking at your heart and he sees it. But to be born again, he sees a heart now that's beginning to beat for him, that can now be committed to him. But not just to enter the faith, but for the Christian here that's walking along the faith. It was David who said in Psalm 51, create in me a clean heart, renew a right spirit within me, So, I mean, this is the life of the Christian, that we're always guarding our heart. We're guarding our heart. It's the wellspring of life. This is why we looked at those seven deadly sins. Where is our heart out of line? So God looks at the heart. I I don't want to encourage poor eating, lack of exercise, uh, career destruction. I'm not encouraging those things. I'm just saying be mindful to the degree that you're working to cultivate your heart to be a thing of beauty and a thing of passion and a heartbeat that, you know, when you see a a couple in love, it's so obvious. That's what the Christian is to be towards God because of his son's death for us. As we think, and we're saying that, that the the son of God laid down his life for us. Let us have hearts 
that beat for God. That's the first lesson, that God looks at the heart. But then secondly, God uses ordinary people to do very unique things. I, I, I mean, don't you often find you kind of scratching your head, I can't believe what God just did. You know, have you ever said that when you've seen God's grace come into your life? You say, I, I can't believe he did it that way. Who would have ever thought that? You know, here's David. David is slight in stature. He's very unimpressive, and yet he becomes the greatest king. All the kings following David are judged by David. David is the litmus test for what is a good king. David is significant. I mean, you think about it. Not only geographically did he expand the borders of Israel beyond even the present modern state of Israel. They're wider than that. Uh, David, David's kingdom was actually associated with God's kingdom. And when Jesus came to establish his kingdom, it's really seen as a completion of David's kingdom. David's right there in the center. David's kingdom is that great. I mean, think about David as a poet. I mean, can you imagine without David's poetry? Think of all the psalms that have saved you and served you and helped you. He wrote those. This was a shepherd boy. This is a, this is a shepherd boy that wasn't named by his father, wasn't even included in the running. And think of how his, the beauty of his literature, the, the way it, it resonates, it, it connects with us and God. He wrote those. David was a musician. He set these psalms to music. He plays music in the second half of 16 to calm Saul. I mean, he's a musician. He's more recognized than anybody else in Scripture besides Christ. More than Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, more than Joseph, more than Noah, more than Gideon, more than any of them. He's mentioned close to 60 times in the New Testament. This is a nobody that became somebody. And the reason that God uses the ordinariness of David is to show how extraordinary he is. That's why God does this. That's what Paul said. He says in 1 Corinthians, he says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were a noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, not even recognized, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. In other words, the key to our ordinariness is his extraordinariness. So you have the world looks to say that you're special, and you're unique, and you're needed by God, and yet God looks for the ordinary. He looks for the ordinary. I mean, think about the people that have moved in your life. Think about the people that have affected you. Have they been notable? Have they been of great renown? Have they been of great, you know, kind of, that, that they, their names are high and lifted up? The people that have really intersected your soul. Have they just been ordinary people? God uses ordinary people. And, and I would just, <clears throat> as parents, I, I would just give this warning or I would submit this to you. You know, we live in an age now where everybody gets a trophy and where everybody's special, everybody's unique, and everybody's needed by God. Teach your kid a little ordinariness is a good thing. Just you're ordinary, we're all ordinary. It's a good thing to be ordinary. It doesn't mean that if he excels in math, just, you know what, what we want to drive home to both our children, but also one another, what makes us unique is God has made us in his image. 
We don't want them having a self-image. We want them focused on his image. So if they are good in math, then have them thank God, because whatever we receive, what do we have that we haven't received? Why would we ever boast of anything? As if we didn't receive it. And so encourage ordinariness, because God takes ordinariness, and he is extraordinary through it. And so those of you, not just thinking about your kids, but thinking about yourself, what have you written out? You know, so many of us seem to write ourselves out of God's script. You know, God may be doing, I can't do that. I'm not gifted at that. Someone else is stronger at that than I am. No, I'm not very gifted at that. We write ourselves out of God's plan all the time because we just say we don't have it. But the point of it is, that's why he chooses you. You don't have it. He gives it to you. God doesn't call the fit. He fits those whom he calls. So he's going to give you what you need. I mean, David becomes this stellar example of anybody in this room, by God's grace, and we're going to see in just a minute, how God uses us to advance his purposes so that in the end, God will be boasted over. And heaven won't be about a bunch of backslapping, high-fiving over all that God did through us. It's going to be about God because God uses ordinary people to do great and extraordinary things. Okay, the third thing that I would point out to you from this lesson is that God accomplishes his purposes through his spirit, through his spirit. Notice it says that the spirit rushed upon David, rushed upon him. David couldn't have done any of these things. David wasn't put in a training program. He wasn't in the the developmental program on how you can be a good king. It was the spirit of God that moved on him. And the spirit of God, by the way, is not like a can of spinach for Popeye. You know, you take it down, boom, you get guns. It's not like that. What the spirit of God is, it's working in you, and you're going to notice, even next week in Genesis 7, in in 1 Samuel 17, when he defeats uh, Goliath, that the Spirit of God is equipping him into conflict. And while Goliath fell, not all the enemies fall immediately. The Spirit of God perseveres David through chapter after chapter of being hunted and challenged by Saul. But the Spirit of God is what gave David the capacity to be an ordinary person, doing extraordinary things, because he will get no credit, God will get the credit, and God deserves the credit, because it's the Spirit of God working through David. So the world wants to move to self-help and developmental ideas, but God says, you need my Spirit. See, what the Spirit does is he slowly helps us overcome our sins, that we're seeking to be filled with the Spirit so that we can put to death the deeds of the flesh. We seek to be filled with the Spirit so that we can speak of the gospel to someone that may be antagonistic. Uh, We're to be filled with the Spirit so we can love our wife who is not acting in a lovable way. We're to be filled with the Spirit so we can lead our children when we're exhausted, but we still need to engage them with the truth of the gospel. We want to be filled with the Spirit so that we can love those people who outwardly, they're not very attractive, but we're going to look at their heart anyways. So the Spirit of God is what does these. It's not us kind of welling up and, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. You know, it's like you're going to somehow muster up the courage to do it. No, it's the Spirit of God. And, And it's the Spirit of God that unifies us in here. Do you realize that it's the same Spirit that fills every believer? So the person that you respect most in this church, whoever it would be, probably Carol, and... And you would say, I want more of her spirit. You have the same spirit. You have the same spirit. And you have it in its fullness. 
She doesn't have a different or better spirit. We all have the same spirit, and that unifies us together. And so what we do is we want to ask to be filled with the spirit. And you see in Ephesians 5, Paul says this very same thing. He says, hey, the days are evil. Make the most of every opportunity. Don't be drunk with wine, which leads to dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And the good thing is that Jesus Christ himself said, he said, though you are evil and you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? When was the last time you asked, God, give me your Spirit, that I can walk in the ways that you would place before me? When was the last time? Was it this morning? Was it last week? Maybe it hasn't been in this year. And yet Jesus says, he will not refuse the spirit. He says, look at your own life. You as a father or mother, you love to give good gifts to your children. You're excited to do it. It's enjoyable for you. It's enjoyable to God to give us his spirit to enable us to do it. Okay, the fourth lesson I would bring before you would be um, that God has purposes for his delays. God has purposes for his delays. Listen, David is... The oil is fresh on his hair. And you find him in the second half of 16, back in the fields, shepherding. Can you believe that? And not just that, but in chapter 17, David, when he comes, and we'll see that he comes into, uh, into the camp and he prepares to defeat Goliath, he was a food delivery boy for his father bringing food to his brothers. He was back in the fields again. God coronated him, and then moved him into obscurity. He moves him into obscurity. But it's in obscurity where he's learning patience, not being recognized. It's during those years where he was a lieutenant under Saul. Even though he was anointed king, he was a lieutenant to Saul. And he learned the art of welfare, warfare. You know, you realize David won't be recognized king until 2 Samuel? It could be 10 to 15 years that he will have labored in the fields and as a second to Saul before he's recognized. But all that time, he's learning patience. He's learning humility. He's cultivating a heart for God. He's writing these psalms. He's developing a love for God. All taking place. You know, we live in a world that wants it and wants it now. We have a love for the immediate. We have a love for the instantaneous. And yet God is slowly cultivating in his people a Christ-likeness. In fact, I love what one author said. He said, when God wants to develop the inner qualities, he takes his time. He takes his time. Maybe, maybe you're a mother or you're laboring at work and you're going nowhere fast or you're a student. You feel like you live in obscurity. Your life doesn't matter. Can, can I ask you, to ask God for wisdom on how you can leverage your obscurity, that you could be learning these inner qualities of holiness and humility and joy and cultivating a love for God? Can I ask you to invite a brother or sister in your care group or a friend in this church? Would you pray with me? I feel like I'm absolutely indifferent to the world. I'm making no difference at all. I, I, I have no impact on the community. I have, I have no impact on people around me. And would you pray with me? that God would leverage this time where I might cultivate those inner qualities that he will then use, he will then make me capable of doing what he will have me do. I mean, ask him for these things. Appeal to him that you might leverage that time. I think of Moses all those years in the desert, all those years before he would be used by God. What is God doing in you right now? Ask him. 
You know, why, if you feel like you are in the midst of just obscurity, why? What does he have for you? I would encourage you to ask him. Okay, and the, and the fifth and the last thing would be that God, God is revealing to us through David a true king. So, so God has, he looks at the heart, not at the outward appearance. God um, uses ordinary people. He doesn't use the stars necessarily, that God um, gives us the spirit to accomplish his purposes, and that God uses delays to cultivate in us greater growth, but then God reveals to us this true king. What David is, and what I want you to see is, you know, God, I traced you all the way up to 1 Samuel. I took you right on through every book of the Bible, how God is bringing forth a king, right? That, that you know, what we understand of progressive revelation is that progressively God's plan becomes more clear. It, it, it's God's fashioning a clear plan that we begin to see because the scripture and the revelation of God begins to build. And so with David, we see this high water mark in that God now raises up a king after his own heart. It's a picture of what is to come. David cannot save us. David's an example, but he can't save but notice that David was called the anointed one. And the word anointed in Hebrew means Messiah. And in Greek, the word is Christos or Christ. So David is a Christ for us. He's a type of Christ. Now, other kings and other prophets who were anointed, they were also called Messiahs. But what's interesting is David is kind of pointing to this true Messiah to come. So when Jesus comes in the New Testament, he's called Christ, but he's called Christ 500 times, not once or twice, but 500 times. It's clear he's the Christ. So when Jesus Christ comes, he says, he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent him and believe the gospel. That's Jesus now coming to establish his kingdom, performing miracles, evidencing the nature of the kingdom and what the kingdom's going to be like, giving authoritative teaching. You've heard it said, but I say to you, showing himself that he's the true king. So David is leading us to Christ because Christ is the only king that can save. Christ is the one who lays down his life. We're going to see failures in David. You will see no failures in Christ. But David is just a pointer. This is the king you need. We need a king, and he's the king. When you think about the kings in your life, in other words, we all need you know, for some of us, this idea of kingship can take the form of the government. We need the government to be our protector. We need the government to be our provider. We need the government to be our savior. We, we can, many of us, and you see the increased rhetoric. And it isn't Democrats to Republicans alone. It was Republicans to Democrats with Obama. It, it's, it's, we are, you see this increased fear over the government not doing what they're supposed to do. In our minds, we set up the government as a type of king. Or some of us may set up marriage. i got to be married. I have to have a spouse. I have to have the right spouse, and she has to or he has to be the right way to me. And, and my life and my happiness and my future depends on if I get married. If I don't get married, then what's going to happen to me? Or it may be children. If I don't have children, i got to have children. If I don't have children, I don't have meaning. I don't have purpose. Or it might be work. I've got to have a career. It's got to advance at this pace. I've got to make this much money. All these things can be these substitute kings in our lives that we look to for meaning and purpose in life, just like they did Saul. But we're to look that way towards Christ. Only Christ, who has died for us, 
can be the type of king for us that we need. And with Christ as our king, we need no other king. All those other things may be fine and good and right in their place in your life, but they aren't it. Only he is it. And only he will always be it for us. That's why right now he's at the right hand of God reigning. Who? For the church, for us. So I think David's going to instruct us greatly in this. So we've seen God reject the king. Do not be mindless over the severity of God to disobedience. He searches for a king. God starts something new. Isn't that good news? Isn't that good news? When everything seems like at a collapse point, he starts something new. His mercies are new every morning. And then God has anointed a king for us, David. But David's pointing to the true king that we need. So let's just take a minute now and perhaps uh, allow the Spirit of God to convict us. Don't defend yourself. Open yourself to him. And, uh, and ask for forgiveness if you've walked in a way and fashioned other kings that you've followed and worshipped and offered sacrifices to. Or, or perhaps celebrate that we have a king. Celebrate that he is so good and so glorious and he's demonstrated a great love for us. And then I will close this in just a few moments.